Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah. Vessalatu vesselamu ala Resulillah. Ve alihi ve sahbihi ve man wala. In our rather complex journey through these various paradigms of leadership, we've looked at a range of different human types. Some scholarly, some spiritual, some military, some inspirational from the earliest time of Islam, including some of the Khulafa, down to uh, modern times. <clears throat> what I want to have a go at today is to look at another modern figure, but one who, uh, largely because of his own preference for khumul or obscurity, uh, is not particularly known in the, in the wider ummah, although at various points of his long life he engaged with some, some key thinkers. Uh, and this is somebody who is mentioned from time to time at CMC. Uh, if anybody was present at the uh, opening of this building, Unity House, almost 10 years ago now, the grand CMC opening, really, uh, they may recall that the dedicatory prayer for CMC and its success and its acceptability to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was given by uh, a very aged English gentleman by the name of Ahmed Bullock. And it was a very extraordinary prayer that, despite the fact that he was already um, approaching his 90s, uh, was delivered in a very strong and, and passionate voice, <coughs> ended uh, with a kind of uh, statement of optimism about the divine capacity to overturn difficult circumstances and to open new gates. He, he really loved uh, CMC. And uh, diploma graduates from CMC may well recall that every year we would make a trip with them to Oxford and one of the highlights of the trip was always a visit to Sheikh Ahmed Bullock who would fill them in on what it was like to be the imam of one of Britain's oldest mosques, the imam of the mosque in Oxford back in the very distant days of the 1950s. <coughs> Uh, and he always had some interesting anecdotes to share with our students, a very unassuming person. So I, I'd like to go through the events of his life, um, not least because uh, two years ago, just over 2018, he made his, his final journey to the Akhirah. Uh, born 1st of August 1924, Oxford, died 25th of October 2018, Oxford. Uh, so he's buried in Brookwood, quite close to Pictall and Quilliam and some of those other sort of better-known names of the Anglo-Muslim movement, and quite close also to Idris Shah, who we'll be able to talk about a little bit later on in this uh, informal talk. Uh, so Ahmed Bullock, yes, a, a figure of significance really to, to CMC and a very interesting link to an age that we tend not to know enough about. I think when we think about British Muslim history, we think about, unless we go really a long way back to the Barbary Corsairs, we think about Quilliam and his community, <coughs> which came to an end before the First World War. And then we think about uh, primary migration and the flourishing of, of communities since the 1960s. But what happens in that intermediate half century is kind of a, a grey area. But there were amazing people, uh, the Uyghurs, uh, martyred Muslim people of uh, uh, Eastern Turkestan, occupied by China, um, are of course very much in the headlines. And we tend to forget that in 1935, 
uh, a British Muslim called Khalid Sheldrake <coughs> was actually appointed by the Uyghur Muslims to be their sultan, to be their emir. Uh, and he made a very adventurous journey, Beijing, and then moving east through what was then a kind of warlord-ridden and unstable um, China, getting as far as Gansu province and a little bit further, before a Soviet plot directed from, from the Kremlin itself uh, conspired to uh, close the borders and made it impossible for him actually to, as it were, assume his throne. But uh, an English Muslim king of the Uyghurs would have been certainly <laughs> an interesting uh, beacon in the middle of what is otherwise a rather obscure uh, period in our history. So uh, Sheikh Ahmed, whom I had the uh, benefit of spending some time with, Rahmatullahi alayhi, uh, was a kind of living link to those uh, very difficult, uh, different times, the 1950s and even the 19, 1940s. So the, the biodata, um, insofar as it's possible to reconstruct the events of the life of a very retiring man who would generally only tell things about himself when he wanted to make some extraneous point. He was from that older generation of British people that really didn't like talking about themselves. And it's the opposite of the modern woke narcissistic culture where everything is about me and my narrative and my story. As Megan says, my story. Um, Sheikh Ahmed wasn't interested in his story. Uh, but nonetheless, we have um, his papers in the archive here at CMC, including some very interesting correspondence. So what we can do in order to try and recreate the events of his life and to think about what it was like to be a kind of pioneering British Muslim and one of the country's first imams, uh, is that we can go through the letters that he wrote. We won't be able to do this for our generation, of course, because everything will be demagnetized by Google or Yahoo or whoever, and our thoughts will be forever lost. But uh, he kept quite a lot of the correspondence that he entered into with Muslim scholars and particularly with his spiritual director. So one of the things we'll be able to do is to look at the uh, issue of what it was like to be a murid, a spiritual disciple, in the mid-20th century in Oxford. So it's a kind of unique perspective, even though his uh, uh, figure, figure has been somewhat in the shadows. So he's, he was not from a particularly uh, uh, favoured background in terms of economics, and he struggled with, with, with faqr, with uh, significant uh, economic challenges uh, throughout his life. Um, his father had been a brewer's clerk. Um, so somewhere in the boundaries between the English caste system, the working class and the lower middle class, I suppose, even though he was always beautifully spoken. Um, he was an only child, and another difficulty in reconstructing the events of his life is that he never had children himself. Uh, he uh, was dedicated to the welfare of his wife, but she never had children, and uh, his mother lived with him until she died. Um, but it was basically him and the two ladies and uh, no offspring. Uh, so a solitary person in many ways. He went to Oxford High, which is one of the good schools um, in Oxford, uh, at the beginning of the First World War, 1940-1942, passes his Oxford local examinations. Uh, and in 1942, he takes his shahada, the circumstances for that at that time, rather unusual step. We'll be talking about a little bit later on. Um, but of course, this is the, the uh, 
the high point of the Second World War. And uh, at the age of 18, he is called up, September 1942, and he remains in the army until 1947 when he's demobbed. So he's with Her Majesty's Armed Forces. He was in the army, the infantry and uh, the artillery um, for five five years, a period that he didn't enjoy particularly. He was at the artillery school at uh, Lark Hill on Salisbury Plain, the Royal School of Artillery, uh, which is where he did his basic training and, and, and learnt how to deal with, uh, uh, with, um, with, with the guns. So uh, then he is thrown into the conflict uh, uh, after D-Day. He's not there at D-Day. And again, it was so difficult getting him to talk about his war experience. He just kind of, he turned that page. Uh, but we know that he was involved in the Allied thrust across northern France. And at the end of 1944, uh, he was stationed in uh, the Ardennes, just in time for the Battle of the Bulge, which was the most threatening German counterattack. And his unit was positioned right opposite the 6th SS Panzer uh, Army, whose crack unit was the 1st SS Panzer Division, uh, known as the Leibstandarte Adolf Hitler, so Hitler's own bodyguard, the great guards unit of the SS was <laughs> the other side of the, the forest. Um, and these, uh, this is the, these are the authors of the Malmedy massacre, which happened exactly at that time, um, a massacre of unarmed American prisoners, which was one of the big war crimes. So these were very formidable opponents, led by General Sepp Dietrich, you can read about it. If you're interested in Anthony Beaver's book on the Battle of the Bulge. So he is there, but we already get a sense that he is a kind of a rather mischievous person. And this seems to be why he never really progressed um, up the ranks in the army, even though um, you could get a field commission and progress quite quickly during the war. Uh, and he was in the thick of the fighting. This is sort of uh, through the cold. It was a very cold winter. Um, chucking grenades through windows, mopping up with a machine gun, house-to-house -house fighting. He was, he was in, in the thick of that. <clears throat> but it seems that he was quite insubordinate. He didn't like the army and its discipline. He was an individual and an individualist. So one of the things that is in his letters, as an anecdote, he's writing here to a, an Italian orientalist. <clears throat> well, in the Ardennes, I nearly got captured myself. We were in a situation where the front was extremely fluid. I and a driver went off exploring, looting, I suppose, really. <laughs> anyway, we went down a country road which led, although we had no map, right into the bulge where the Germans were. We carried on and carried on and passed not Highland Division transports, the 50, 51st Highland Division was, was there, or American, then it dawned on us what we were getting into. So we started to turn around. As we did so, a German tank appeared round a corner. So we made off back the way we had come pretty damn quick. So a number of escapades like that, um, indicating that he was uh, kind of not really uh, enjoying the, the military discipline. And he remained a kind of individualist, opposed to authority, uh, really, for the rest of his life. So after the Battle of the Bulge, he's involved in the Rhine crossings, uh, and his driver is killed. Uh, this is an event that he did speak about when he was explaining why he was always deaf in one ear. And he said, that's because of Adolf Hitler made me deaf, because a shell from an 88 went off 
uh, very close to the Jeep, which his driver was driving. The driver was killed and he himself um, was, was wounded. And for that reason, communicating with him, he had to get on the right side of him uh, because he really was profoundly deaf in, in one side. Um, other stories that he would tell about the war, 1945, um, he went through Weimar um, at the time when the Allies, the Western Allies and the Russians were meeting up and one of his officers was basically kidnapped by the Russians and roughed up. They thought he was some kind of German. And through various uh, negotiations, they were able to get him back again, but he'd been beaten up quite seriously and his pen and his watch had been stolen and so forth. So even after the war, he's in a very kind of fluid and difficult situation. And he, he really saw that um, now very distant age, of course. Um, we think about the Duke of Edinburgh, who has recently left us, who is one of the few people left from that generation, almost an exact contemporary of Sheikh uh, Ahmed. And again, of course, he saw active service, um, a living link with the past. Anyway. Um, after he uh, uh, is demobbed, uh, he studies for a while in Cambridge at Pembroke College, where he acquires a reputation again of being a kind of naughty boy. Uh, he was one of the famous night climbers of Pembroke at the time, and night climbing is something that students still do, and we're still very angry with them when they do it. The idea is that at night, usually it's the boys, go out in their ordinary clothes, not in climbing gear, and they climb up and down all of the famous buildings of Cambridge. And um, Sheikh Ahmed was famous for putting a chamber pot upside down on top of one of the best-known buildings of Cambridge, and it took the, 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 the uh, proctors a long time to, to get it down again. So naughty even in Cambridge, but his main studies uh, in the Western tradition were at SOAS. Um, he was enrolled there for the BA, in uh, Arabic studies, where he was taught by a number of Orientalists of that generation and was having endless arguments with Bernard Lewis, another person who died fairly recently, I think he was over 100. Um, and the teaching of Islam at the time at SOAS was particularly contentious and a lot of Muslim students were very unhappy. So uh, Sheikh Ahmed had these arguments with Bernard Lewis and eventually decided that he wouldn't put up with this any longer and so he left SOAS. He never completed his degree. He never got a, a degree. So uh, he leaves London, goes back to Oxford to stay with his mother, whose health is failing. And this becomes one of the themes of his life, that he is nursing uh, his womenfolk. Um, I remember visiting him once and... He was, his mother was long gone, but his wife, who had never become a Muslim, and she was kind of scathing about Islam, but he was old school and stuck with her. He regarded this as his duty. Uh, she had Alzheimer's, uh, but he nursed her to the end and dealt with that difficult situation just out of his sense of, sense of honour, really. Um, got some basic work in the Morris Car Factory in, in uh, Cowley in Oxford. Uh, in the early 1950s, he is taking the bus regularly <coughs> from Gloucester Green in Oxford to Victoria and then travelling on to see an Al-Sari sheikh who uh, is in London at the time, Sheikh Uraba, uh, who teaches him Arabic. And Sheikh Ahmed acquired uh, a tolerable speaking knowledge of Arabic, but his written Arabic was, was better. There are letters that we have um, from him which are in perfectly serviceable uh, Arabic. It was his main Eastern language. Um, 
Suleiman Dunya was also around, and there was a kind of migration from these, uh, amongst these Egyptians who'd been sent by Al-Azhar to study at Soas, for the same kind of reason that Sheikh Ahmed didn't like the place, and Professor Arbery here in Cambridge, who was much more Muslim-friendly, welcomed them. And so Ali Abdul Qadir, whom Sheikh Ahmed also knew, made the hijra to Cambridge and did his PhD in Cambridge and eventually became one of the first directors of the Islamic Cultural Centre in London. Sheikh Uraba did the same, Suleiman Dunya. So there's a small, uh, even though there's very few mosques, maybe two mosques in London and very few Muslims, uh, Tower Hamlets is not yet um, Muslim, a uh, different age, but he was very zealous in uh, attending these classes even though he had to leave Oxford. And Sheikh Ali Abdul Qadir was the one who seems to have put into his head the idea of actually going to the Middle East and studying particularly in Cairo. Uh, the next interesting incident in his life is 1954. Uh, Sheikh Ahmed has met a number of Muslim students in Oxford, um, including somebody called Mujahid Sawaf and other people who are involved with uh, Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood, and he gets on with them. And in 1954, uh, by which time he's really following Near Eastern politics after the Egyptian Revolution and the decolonization, it was a very climactic time. Uh, the new head after Hassan al-Banna's uh, al assassination, uh, al-Hudaybi, is arrested by Gamal Abdel Nasser and sentenced to death. So Sheikh Ahmad hatches a harebrained scheme to rescue him and he gets in touch with some ex-para friends of his. And remember, Ahmed has been in a fight. He knows how to handle himself in a conflict situation. And they worked out how you would break into Torah prison in the heart of Cairo and spring Hassan Hudaybi, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood. And they reckoned that it, it wasn't going to be particularly difficult. And they knew how to use explosives. And they had it worked out. But they needed money to pay these uh, mercenaries, these, these former parachute regiment guys, commandos. Uh, and the money really was, was the issue. Sadiq al-Mahdi was another um, friend of Sheikh Ahmed at the time, um, heir to the Mahdist tradition in Sudan, uh, who suggested that his grandfather, Sir Sayyid Abd Abdurrahman in Sudan, who was wealthy, might be able to help. Uh, but unfortunately, the money didn't come through because of the really difficult and indeed dangerous politics of this. This is sort of illegal um, dogs of war type um, mercenary activity in the heart of Cairo and politically very explosive. Uh, so the plan to get him out and at the time they wanted to take him to Iraq uh, never actually materialized um, so that the commandos were, were stood down. But we can already see that Sheikh Ahmed is really interested in politics. He's pretty anti-Western. Um, and used to lecture Muslim students in Cambridge really until his, his last days on the failings of the Western democratic system. Um, so he wrote, for instance, the contention that truth emerges from the dialectic is evidently false. The most competent rhetorician carries the argument. And then later, the consistent sidelining of parliament by the Blair government indicates the proportional majority is not even allowed to have their representatives contribute to legislation. Lies, spin, confidence tricks are the hallmark of the current version of parliamentary democracy practiced in the UK. And this was really throughout his life. He was really angry about Israel. He was angry about 1967. He was angry about the first Gulf War, about the Iraq 
uh, debacle. Um, he was not an establishment man. Um, he also quite um, often was tempted by conspiracy theories. So he thought that uh, movements like Al-Qaeda were actually created by the CIA and by the Israelis in order to shatter the Muslim world and to justify continued Western hegemony. He was quite inclined to that sort of conspiratorial view. Anyway, in 1953, this is just before the, the, the jailbreak that never was, uh, he marries Mifan Wee Fan. She dies in 2005. She's buried next to him. Uh, interestingly, in the Muslim bit of Brookwood, even though she apparently never took her shahada. Um, and much of his spiritual life really, as I say, is kind of domestic, but not in parenting, but rather in just caring for his uh, women folk with uh, frequent medical issues. So even though he was against the establishment and chafed under military uh, discipline in the ar army, he was uh, somebody who had a very strong sense of duty. 1956, the Suez Crisis. And he thinks that there's going to be a full-scale war with Egypt, and that as somebody who has the right kind of experience, he's going to be called back into the army. He doesn't want to fight against the Egyptians and fellow Muslims. And so he leaves uh, the UK and he goes to Iraq. November 1956, he leaves and goes to Iraq, where he has some friends, um, partly because of the Sawaf connection. Um, Muhammad Sawaf, the father of his friend, is actually head of the Muslim Brotherhood in Iraq at the time. And later on, he continues his connection with uh, Iraq, um, acquiring books for his business, um, as came into being somewhat later from the, the Iraqi National Academy al-Majma al-Ilmi. He keeps those connections. So he writes um, in one of his notebooks, I spent some, t some months enjoying the hospitality and protection of the Ikhwan in Iraq before the revolution there in 1957-8. So who else was there there to you know, deepen his knowledge of Islam? There was somebody called Muhammad Abu Mahdi, who was a very well-known Palestinian poet and writer, journalist involved with something called the Jam'ayat Inqad Palestine, which is a pro-Palestinian right to return movement. And he always was very passionate about, about Palestine. Uh, he also studied for a while with somebody called Sheikh Amjad Zahawi, who was a great Hanafi scholar of, of Baghdad uh, and is one of the, the two founders of the Ikhwan in Iraq. Uh, he spent some time with Sheikh uh, Abdul Karim Zaydan, um, who is much better known, really, and was a student of Sheikh Muhammad Abu Zahra, author of the famous four books on the four imams and other things on, on fiqh. Um, and who was dean of the, the faculty of Sharia in Baghdad at the time and later moved to Yemen. He died in 2014, so quite recently, must have been really old. And he was the author of a book that a lot of Sharia students know and love, Al-Wajiz fi Usul al-Fiqh. Al-Wajiz fi Usul al-Fiqh. So he's studying with some quite significant people. But perhaps the most interesting uh, friendship that he developed when he was in Baghdad was with somebody called Taqiyadin al-Hilali. Taqiyuddin al-Hilali is somebody whose name is known to many today in the West as one of the co-translators of the official Saudi translation of the Qur'an and also of uh, Sahih al-Bukhari. And these are distributed in mega quantities and he's one of the two translators. Uh, and he really gets to know him. So who is Taqiyuddin al-Hilali? He's Moroccan 
from Tafilat Valley scholars right in the south of Morocco. At an early age, he had he studied Maliki fiqh, but he kind of converts to Salafism. And then he goes to Egypt and becomes a leading student of Rashid Rida. And then after the Saudi conquest of uh, Makar and Medina, he teaches in Makar and Medina and is one of the spearheads of the Saudi campaign to replace the old madrasas with institutions where the doctrines of Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab can be taught and is very instrumental in this. He wants to get a PhD um, and he doesn't want to do it in England or France because it's so anti-colonial. The French have actually imprisoned him for a while in, in, in Morocco. So he goes to Germany. So a Moroccan going to Germany in 1936 with the swastikas everywhere and the Jews expelled and uh, from positions in academe. But he persists. Uh, and uh, in 1939, he's offered a job with Radio Berlin in the Arabic service, which is an important part of Goebbels and Hitler's strategy for creating dissatisfaction with British and uh, French rule in North Africa and the Near East. Uh, and he thinks about this for a while, but he actually agrees. So for three years, he's one of the linchpins of the Arabic service of the Nazi Huna Berlin, as people would hear it in, in the Near East. And uh, he would have to write his scripts, and then they had to be translated into German for a kind of Nazi commissar to read and to approve, and then he was able to broadcast them, but he was given a lot of freedom. There's been some academic interest in him at the time of the other Arabs in Berlin uh, during the Nazi period. Um, and he said things like, in Germany, the people are truly free. Everybody's free to vote. Hitler was elected. He didn't mention that certain ethnic groups Roma, Jews, and so forth were excluded from that. So National Socialism, he said, is not a dictatorship and is expressing this in very beautiful, mellifluous, classical Arabic. Uh, the Germans are, in his eyes, a kind of model of unity and energy, exactly the qualities that the Arabs need to emulate in order, if they're going to chuck out the colonialists, whereas the British and the French are the enemies of humanity. Uh, so, you have this strange friendship after the war. Uh, Hilali is in Baghdad, uh, and he befriends Sheikh Ahmed Bullock, even though they've been on opposing sides during the war. Uh, and so Ahmed writes uh, in his description of these people as he studied with, Maghribi, Salafi scholar, blind, knows me well, teaches in Dar al-Mu'allimin al-Aliyah, very helpful, sincere Muslim. So and they both lived in the Azamiya district of uh, Baghdad. So, and that connection seems to have continued because, uh, for instance, one of the things that we have in the archives is a letter from 1968 from Taqiyadin Hilali's brother, um, Sheikh Muhammad al-Arabi al-Hilali, who remains in Morocco and becomes similarly a kind of Salafist uh, person. And he's in correspondence with him uh, for a period of time. وَمَا ذَكَرْتُمْ مِنْ عَدَمِ فَهْمِ النَّاسِ لِأُمُورِ الْإِسْلَامِ وَمُحَارَبَتِهِمْ لَهُ فَذَلِكَ 
بأن الله ولكن الله غني عنهم والإسلام أمر عظيم وعال جدا. So he says what you have mentioned, Sheikh Ahmad, about people's misunderstanding of the true nature of Islam and their hostility to it. Sheikh Ahmed here is talking about the prejudice that he met in Oxford. Um, is is in connection with this, you need to remember that Allah has no need from them. Islam is a magnificent thing, exalt, highly exalted, and it can only be understood. And can only be understood by people of uh, high minds and uh, noble intentions. Um, and then the letter goes on to explain how Sheikh Ahmed should continue with his struggle and mentions um, that uh, Sheikh Al-Arabi would like to be with him. وَلَيْتَنِي كُنْتُ مَعَكُمْ hmm? If only I was with you, uh, and if only I knew the English language so that I could, put, could participate in your jihad. This is his da'wah in uh, Oxford and in the kind of embryonic situation of British... Islam. So uh, this is where his networking with many people around the Islamic world uh, begins. Uh, from Iraq in November 1957, he travels on to India, where he's found a job teaching English to the children of an aristocratic family, the Zainal Ali Reza family in uh, Bombay. He spends about a year in India and then returns to the UK uh, where he finds work at Blackwell's, the famous bookshop publisher in Oxford, in their Arabic and Islamic Oriental books section. Uh, but he finds that unsatisfying and recognising that the growing, uh, there's a growing need for books from the Arabic world, he starts his own book dealership. And this is uh, his bread and butter, really, for almost all of the rest of his life. And it becomes, for decades, Britain's go-to place for Islamic literature, both Orientalist texts and also literature in Arabic, Farsi and, uh, and Turkish. And he certainly knew Farsi and knew Arabic. I'm not sure how good his Turkish was. Um, uh, but uh, it seems that he had a, a good working knowledge of French and German as well. Uh, largely through self-study. He was a motivated person. He hadn't made it at SOAS, but he taught himself these uh, languages. And he also uh, became a calligrapher. So we have some examples of his Arabic calligraphy. And it's at this point in his life where he's a little bit more mature. He's in his 30s now. He has a stable, although rather um, Spartan existence as the result of the money coming in from his book dealership. He's able to indulge some of his lifelong passions, archery in particular. And he became an expert on uh, the Seljuk and the Mongol composite bow. Uh, once when I visited him, he said he really couldn't understand why his neighbours were so unhappy that they would find arrows in their back gardens. <laughs> Rather frustrating. A small terraced house, Kelburn Road in Cowley, and of course these bows can shoot hundreds of metres. So he used to go out to the... Uh, Halal Organic Farm, Willowbrook Farm, uh, in order to practice there. And he did it well into old age and would teach young Muslims the art of, a sunnah art of archery as well. Also, he was really into cats, uh, lots of cats in his house, and he was very uh, fond of them. But in any case, the next thing that is significant in his life, in his life is 
his role as imam, one of Britain's first imams. Uh, Oxford didn't really attract the kind of mass migration that sometimes had, but still developed a significant Muslim community through the university and through the restaurant trade, which was partly sort of parasitical upon the university. So the first Muslim prayer room in Oxford was opened uh, uh, at uh, 108 Walton Street, the basement of uh, what was then the Dildunya restaurant, which uh, then moved to the Cowley Road, I think, but is now Jamal's. I think it's still a Punjabi restaurant, or Bangladeshi. And, uh, they had a prayer room there uh, because of the Bangladeshis who really were the first sort of significant Muslim presence to be domiciled in Oxford rather than Muslims who were birds of passage and would study at the university for a while and then leave and didn't really have a long-term investment in the town that might encourage them to create a uh, mosque. Um, so uh, 108 Walton Street, and sometimes he's leading the prayer there. After all, he studied with some significant uh, scholars. Um, in 1957, the premises at 10 Bath Street is bought, which is um, in St. Clement's and is a, a larger establishment altogether as the community began to grow. Um, uh, it was a very mixed community, though, because there was a large Sudanese, quite a religious Sudanese Maliki community. I mentioned Sadiq al-Mahdi, but there were others. Um, Nur Ali Suleiman, for instance, who went on to become quite significant in Sudanese history, studied in Oxford at the time. They were Malikis, so they needed 40 people, as they explained it, for uh, a Juma. That wasn't going to be possible in the little prayer room. And so uh, that was the origin of the idea of the Bath Street Mosque. And then from uh, the late 1950s, the 1960s in particular, you start to get, as well as the ongoing uh, arrival of the Bangladeshis, um, also uh, Punjabis and some Mirpuris. So the demography is changing. Sheikh Ahmed is kind of the elder statesman of Islam in Oxford. And this begins what might well be the most interesting episode in his life. Uh, his attempt to hold uh, the field for these different groups of Muslims who are often quite unaccustomed to dealing with people whose ethnicity or whose traditions were other than their own. And this is a familiar uh, issue, of course, in many mosques. 1969, the Oxford Mosque Society is created as the first sort of charity. It's not registered as charity for another couple of years, but um, uh, Muhammad Mujahid Sawaf uh, and some of Ahmed's friends, uh, they asked uh, Ahmed Bullock to become the president uh, and it's still in existence. It's still on the register of charities. Slightly later, there's the Oxford University Islamic Union that then morphed into what's currently the Oxford uh, ISOC. Um, and then the proportion of the Pakistanis over the Bangladeshis is growing. And then 1971, Bangladeshi independence creates quite a lot of friction between these two groups. And the <coughs> Punjabis tend to be quite strong uh, Pakistan People's Party supporters. Uh, uh, Ahmad Bullock seems to have been quite, quite in favour of Bangladesh independence. Um, he knew the Bangladeshis and didn't like the way in which Pakistan had tried to hold on to East Pakistan by force. That's another story. But those were his loyalties. So um, in Ramadan 
1979, this tension, which has been difficult for some time, comes to a head <coughs> when a Pakistani Hafiz is brought uh, to record the entire Quran at a studio uh, and uh, seems to have been the one who introduces the Pakistani community to the idea that actually they belong to a denomination, Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, Brailvis. Sheikh Ahmed was quite interesting in reflecting on this. He said that before these people came in the 70s, nobody really knew whether they were Deobandis or Brailvis or what that meant, and they wouldn't have been very interesting, interested. But partly as a result of Pakistani politics, um, these uh, imams and hafizes were coming and telling people that they belonged to a particular denomination, and this began a division which was no longer ethnic, but was sectarian. And Sheikh Ahmad has to kind of ride the, the, the ship of the uh, Dean as it's going through these stormy waters with these different, different tensions, and particularly problem of takfir amongst many of the Brailvis who would not pray with the... Uh, with those who came to understand themselves as Deobandis or most of the Arab and other students who were present in Oxford at the time. This came to a head in August 1982, and we have a lot, several fat files, including charity commission reports, including letters from the Home Office, including police reports, uh, uh, minutes from the various meetings. It's a rather sorry story, but Sheikh Ahmed was determined to bring the groups together and for the Ummah to be one. He had no natural affiliation to either of these groups. He didn't see himself as Deobandi or Mirapuri or anything, uh, Deobandi or um, Brailvi. So, uh, 1982, uh, the Brailvi group takes over the Bath Street Mosque more or less by force. And I dimly remember the controversy that that created um, at the time. So uh, the events go on, as uh, Sheikh Ahmad noted in his letters to the Charity Commission, 17th of March, the lock of the secure room in the mosque is broken. 20th of March, door of the trustees imam room broken, so this is the official imam, and the door removed and his books removed. Trustee beaten and bodily thrown out of the mosque, an Arab student beaten up. So then they have a kind of mediation through the Charity Commission and they agree that there will be alternate prayers. So Zohar, led by Delbandi, Asr, led by Abrelvi, and this is the sort of solution that seems as if it might work. And there'll be two Jumas, one led by Abrelvi and the other one led by Delbandi. Hmm. Uh, but this doesn't seem to work. Uh, so he records daily violence. Police were called to four or five of the daily prayers. Um, yeah, and yeah, I want to skip some of this because it's quite depressing. 1st of June, one of the trust trustees held by two men and beaten. The rival imam says, get him. The police are called to arrest the maid. 10th of June, the Brailvi imam decides he's not going to allow the Deobandi congregation after his uh, uh, jama'ah. The police are called, force him to agree. Mailbox is broken and a steel-locked affair appeared so the trustees could not receive their mail. Uh, the bank account is frozen. And then, 
We have, for instance, a letter from the Charity Commission, 25th of March, 1983. I have heard from the community officer at the Oxford Central Police Station that in recent months there have been a number of incidents involving both damage to property and personal violence and that the situation is deteriorating. It appears that the discussion between the two groups has now reached a stage at which the property of the charity is physically at risk and the chances of resolving the dispute by negotiation are receding rapidly. So on 23rd of June, the, Bangladesh, the Oxford Bangladesh Association writes to the Prime Minister asking for the visa of the intruder imam to be terminated. Um, and the letter says, we would like to say that all Muslims realise or should understand Islam does not allow any sort of ethnic discrimination, but nonetheless, every few years, this seems to rise up in Oxford. On the 25th of June, a notice from the new pirate committee appears in the mosque. Foreign students are allowed prayers and any other worships, but would not be tolerated if they involve in the affairs of mosques. So by this time, the Arab, Turkish students and others are not coming to this place, which seems to be to them just ethnocentric and sectarian. Charity Commission then writes, it's very disappointing to learn of the further incidents of personal violence and the use of force in relation to the charity's property which have occurred since the meeting on 29th of May and of the breakdown in the arrangement for sharing the use of the mosque. It appears that the calling of the election has had a divisive instead of unifying effect on the two sides. And they then think, where maybe they should go to court to prove that the mosque has been taken over. And Sheikh Ahmed is really heartbroken because he's done a lot to fundraise for the original mosque and he's been the imam there for many years and believes that the Arab students and others should have the right to attend Juma and he's struggling with anger issues. So they consider legal action, but the Charity Commission think it's going to take so long that you're going to exhaust all of the charity's assets. You'll have to actually have to sell the building in order to pay for the lawyers. 1984, the beginnings of the Stanley Road Community Mosque, uh, which is where the Deobandis and the Tablighis go. Um, Abul Hassan Ali Nedwi comes to give a talk in Oxford at the examination schools, and Sheikh Ahmed tries to get him to mediate, but um, he's whisked away, apparently, and that becomes impossible. So Sheikh Ahmed saw uh, locally a process that we've seen quite a lot in British mosque communities, which is that the, 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 the violent disagreements tend to diminish once the different groups have their own mosques and their own establishment, the Bangladeshi mosque, the Punjabi mosque, the Mirpuri mosque, and the sectarian mosques. Uh, and that is a sort of solution, but it's not one that he liked. He was very much against this ethnicizing of Islam. And uh, even though I've kind of drawn a veil over some of the things that he had to get involved with, and he was a sensitive person and a lover of Islam and was quite horrified to see this kind of mafiosi behavior. Um, it is important to recognize the, the problematic nature of an ethnic or a sectarian mosque in Islam. If you think about the first mosque that was established in Islam, uh, the Al-Masjid al-Nabawi, this was uh, chosen by the Holy Prophet specifically to be a non-tribal space, the first non-tribal space in Arabia. Even in the Haram in Mecca, the different tribes had their own places where they'd put their statue and they had their area. But the Holy Prophet, alayhi salatu in 
Medina creates something that must have blown the minds of many people when they saw that it really didn't matter at all which tribe you were from. And the Mu'azin was an African, and there was Salman al-Farisi, and there was Sahib the Greek, and they could go wherever they wanted. It was a very extraordinary radical thing, but this is the meaning of the word jami'ah. The word for mosque, jami'ah, means inclusive. And even the Masjid al-Dirar, the other mosque that was established by groups of munafiqeen in a kind of murky story, and the Holy Prophet ordered it to be burnt down. Imagine the Holy Prophet is saying, burn a mosque. It's because it was an alignment of certain Muslims, certain of the Ansar, not for all of the believers. And it's absolutely essential in Islam that a mosque be jami'ah and not be a kind of race temple or a place where people of a particular ethnicity, white, black, Malay, or whatever it might be, can uh, do their thing without including other Muslims. And this has been a major barrier to the da'wah process and to the, to the uh, loyalty of the younger generation who are pretty British now and don't really identify with the older generation's ethnicities and sectarian issues. Uh, so uh, Sheikh Ahmed saw really the way forward for Islam being what he'd tried to do originally uh, at the Bath Street Mosque, was to, which was to create a jamia where everybody could come together. Um, anyway, um, he was... Uh, passionate about this. And actually, he continued to fight. He didn't like the idea that uh, a rival group of trustees had taken over and the original trustees had never been fired. Uh, so he kept on. And the, the final letter from the Charity Commission which resolved it, remember this is a dispute that happens in 1979, which is in our files, is dated 28th of February 2011. A letter from the Charity Commission which finally confirms the original trustees, including Ahmad Bullock, so that's the wheels of British bureaucracy turning very four decades and you finally get a resolution from the state. <laughs> but uh, by that time, you know, he didn't really want to resume giving khutbas and so forth. He was in a kind of khalwa mode and his health was beginning to fail. Although, alhamdulillah, he kept his mental uh, alertness uh, throughout, his, throughout his life, alhamdulillah. But he was very passionate about Muslim unity. So in the mid-1980s, he wrote, jotted this down. I've observed that Islam seems in a worse state than when I became Muslim 45 years ago. In spite of many Muslim peoples having gained political independence, most contemporary Muslim movements regard themselves as the only Muslims so that the Islamic unity Allah enjoins does not exist. All historical lessons indicate Islam succeeds under united leadership. So he was hurt. Um, by this. Um, one of the things that he had to engage with was uh, sectarian matters, including the ongoing Qadiani issue, because for many years, uh, the most active mosque or sort of para-mosque in the UK had been run by the Lahore faction of the Ahmadiyya um, at the Woking, uh, Woking Islamic Centre. And they produced a lot of publications and a journal and kind of claimed the mantle of the Islamic centre of Britain. Now, uh, <laughs> this is something that uh, Sheikh Ahmed wrote later on, indicating that he wasn't enjoying being in the, in the army. In about 1943, my teacher, this is Sayyid Sirdar 
Ali Akbar Shah, who we'll meet shortly, bethought himself to get me out of the army to preserve my well-being, you understand. So he approached the Imam of the Qadianiyah, who had a mosque in Putney, with the story that he knew of an English convert who was showing signs of serious interest in the teachings of Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, deplorable as this might be, etc., but he thought he might like to know. Now this brought the gentleman to a state of high excitement, since an English convert would be a distinct feather in the Qadiani cap. Then the Sirdar evidently thought better of the idea, realising that I would forever be damned as a Qadiani, so the plan was dropped. I learned of this long afterwards, the point being that a converted adherent of a pacifist sect could scarcely be expected to engage in warlike pursuits, even by the British establishment. And remember, partition had not then taken place. So who knew when the Qadiania would be needed again? Um, and he also wrote, I mean, sometimes he would write letters to the Times, and this is one that has survived, dated 26th of October 1958. Uh, which is uh, in, where he's complaining about the misrepresentation of, of, by an author in the, in, in the times of uh, the doctrine of the uncreatedness of the Qur'an. And it's interesting just to take a paragraph out of this to indicate that you know, he did know his scholarly material. Regarding the uncreated nature of the Qur'an, one is aware that the views of the Ahmadiyya, to which your correspondent belongs, in certain other important respects, place them quite outside the bounds of the Islamic community. Evidently, their heresy is also extended to this issue. This question falls among the beliefs <coughs> which, if contradicted, involve heresy, but do not render the holder beyond the pale of Ummat al-Islam. The latter statement accords with the very orthodox Abdul Qahir al-Baghdadi in his Al-Farq Baina al-Firaq. There are relevant issues arising from verse 7 of Surah Al-Imran. Uh, there are unequivocal verses, they are the mother of the book, and other verses which are allegorical, and so forth. So then he talks about, and I don't think this letter could ever have been published because it's quite technical in referring to the difference between the allegorical and the muhkam verses of the Qur'an, but he's certainly indicating that he understands this. Um, yep, saying that it's... Uh, Translation can offer guidance only to the unequivocal verses from which dogma and law are derived. Yours faithfully, Ahmed Bullock. So, yeah, an activist, certainly. Um, another issue that he had was when in 1968... Uh, the directorship of the Regent's Park Islamic Cultural Centre is given to somebody called the Raja of Mahbudabad, who was well known and supported a lot of converts at the time. Um, and Sheikh Ahmed's teacher, Iqbal uh, Ali Shah, told him not to pray behind him because he was a Shia. But it seems Ahmed regarded this as a little bit tough. And in fact, he enters into a correspondence with him and the Raja stays with Ahmed um, when he comes to Oxford and once even lent him £200 to stave off the bankruptcy of his book business. Uh, and then another interesting event that could have been quite significant for the community. 1969, the Raja of Mahmoudabad invites Imam Ahmed Bullock to become the Imam of the Woking Mosque. And again, his teacher says, except only if there is a guaranteed salary and the use of the imam's house. Otherwise, stay in Oxford with your business and your women. 
So he doesn't do this because it seems that the job security um, on offer in working was uh, not really very clear. What I want to do now is to talk about what kind of inner life he's leading and because we have some of his notes and translations um, to help him with uh, his languages he would sometimes make his own translations of classical texts and we've got a few notebooks from that which, which have survived. Um, it's very interesting to note that uh, there's a very strong Nakshbandi and really only Nakshbandi lineage at work here and we'll explain why when I come to talk about his, his teacher a little bit later. Um, and in this notebook, for instance, he is translating or paraphrasing a translation of the Tadkirat al-Awliya of Farid al-Din al-Tar. Uh, and the things that he's noting down, I think, offer a clue into how he, in his rather solitary life, uh, conducted his uh, spiritual progress, which I came to believe was not inconsiderable. When I saw him just a few months before his death, he was really very luminous and remembering God and remembering God's mercy and God's you know, universal presence. Hama Ust, he was quoting from the Persian poets. It was very moving, actually. He was very close to God at that time. So how did he get there from having been the son of a brewer's clerk? Um, here's part of the translated text. After the recitation of the Qur'an Sharif and the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, nothing is to be found to compare with the sayings of the Sufi doctors because these come from an inner illumination, hal, and not from a verbal tradition, from a perception enlightened by the truth and not a doctrinal explanation since they emanate directly from the source of the mysteries and not from transmission. This is ilm ladunni, not knowledge acquired by study, kasbi. Further, the Sufis are the heritors of the Prophet And then he takes down this passage from Attar, where Attar is explaining why he wrote his book, which is a kind of set of edifying biographies of the early saints. We wish that this book should remain as a memorial in the hope that if any of the readers bless our memory, we might have the happiness of profiting from the prayer of a Muslim, so that Allah Ta'ala, because of that prayer, would show mercy and pardon our sins. It is related that Yahya bin Mu'adh, who was the Imam of Herat and who was the Sheikh of Abdullah Ansari Herati, was seen by a saintly person in a dream who asked him, Yahya, what did Allah say to you? And he replied, the Lord said to me, Yahya, I would have shown terrible things to you. But one day when you were preaching and were praising and glorifying me in the presence of my servants, one of my faithful experienced an interior joy from that. And it is therefore I have accorded him your forgiveness. Otherwise you would have seen what we should have done with thee. Sheikh Junaid al-Baghdadi was asked about what the disciples could learn from the sayings of the Sufi doctors. The words of the doctors, the shuyukh, he replied, give back life to the broken hearts of the disciples and revive their uh, ability to walk in the ways of Allah. 
Whenever someone makes a bad impression upon you, this impression that he leaves upon your heart is not forgotten by you, even after many years. Good words also leave an impression upon the heart of him who hears them, but this is 100 times stronger. One day, Abdurrahman al-Arab uh, said, uh, was asked, if a man reading the Qur'an Sharif, but not understanding the sense, does that recital nonetheless produce an effect upon his heart? He replied, yes, most certainly, exactly as a medicine drunk by a sick person acts upon him, although he is ignorant of its nature. It is the same for the Qur'an Sharif, which acts upon the heart, even when the sense is not understood, but which has a vastly more powerful effect when one penetrates the meaning. One day, Abu Yusuf Hamadani was asked, when the Sufis leave this world to go to the next, what should we do to assure our safety? He said, if you read six leaves of the Tadkirat al-Awliya, negligence will be uprooted from your heart and you will be on the way of safety. From an early age, I've always held the Sufi doctors in veneration and I've been given to reading their sayings. And there's more that one can uh, one can read. And uh, what what this seems to have meant for him is that if you're alone, more or less, you've converted to Islam in Oxford in 1942, and the Ummah is far away, and there's a war, and you're basically on your own. Uh, you don't have a Muslim family. Uh, and the possibility of local tariqah seems uh, um, complex, uh, that one can adopt what is known as an oasis principle. So uh, he takes down specifically Atar's Zikri Oasis Qarni An Qibli Tabain Va An Qudwe Arbain An Aftabi Penhan Amhen Nefesa Rahman. His section. You can see his Farsi handwriting here. On Awais al-Qarani, why him? Uh, we know that Sheikh Baha'uddin Naqshband uh, al-Bukhari was also called al-Awaisi al-Bukhari. One of the techniques of the Naqshbandi way is said to be the capacity to learn from teachers who, are, who one doesn't meet in person but who are far away geographically or in time. So one of Shah Bahaeddin's teachers was Khaja uh, uh, Abdul Khaliq Rujdavani, who died 100 years earlier, but from whom he learned very many things. And this can be in a dream or through other, some other kind of uh, perception. And this is called the Awaisi way, or the Vaisi Meshreb. Um, there's plenty of Turks nowadays who follow this. Uh, and in Albania and the Balkans as well. Uh, comes from the hadith in which Awais al-Qarani has heard of the messenger والسلام, and is coming to Medina but never meets him. The Holy Prophet dies. But the Holy Prophet says, I detect the breath of the Rahman coming from Yemen. So this in the complex, uh, profound landscape of Islamic spirituality is not something that's formally in fiqh or aqidah, but is more a kind of personal experience of benefiting in what may be a very mysterious way simply from uh, reading the lives of great ones of the past.
that in some strange way some kind of spiritual connection can be established. Um, so that I think uh, was very important to Sheikh Ahmed. And, but perhaps this is a subject for another lecture, we might reflect on what might be appropriate styles of Islamic spirituality in an age such as ours, where the sheikhs seem to be no longer with us and the silsilas are becoming extinct. Where do we go? We read these books and we visit these places, but where is the reality of guidance? Well, uh, one possibility that the Ummah has always been aware of, uh, which is this very subtle one, but which tends to be linked to a very absolute and uh, committed Sharia compliance, it's very nomocentric, is this Vaisi Meshrab, this Oasi way, whereby people can be mysteriously benefited and upheld and helped in their ibadah, helped in their istiqamah through some kind of unseen, mysterious connection to people who may not any longer be alive. And the vindication of this is that the focus becomes more and more on, on the Creator, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and one's realization that the greatness of the awliya of past ages was because they really weren't there. They'd gone. There's no person left there. Just Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was their qibla and their direction. So it's a very good way of enhancing the reality of one's tawheed. But in any case, that's a kind of speculation about where he was religiously, um, which I find interesting. But what I want to turn to now, which is really the last sort of significant dimension of his life that I think is worth, worth sharing, um, is his relationship with the Shah family. Okay. His spiritual director, at least the one uh, with whom he exchanged correspondence, and we have uh, dozens of letters, detailed letters between him and his teacher, very much in the Naqshbandi tradition, was somebody who had come to Oxford in 1940 because of the Blitz, fewer bombs on Oxford. And this is the man called Sayyid Iqbal Ali Shah, who was uh, originally from an Afghan family, uh, which had Naqshbandi connections, but which had uh, an estate not far from Delhi, Sardana, near Delhi. So, and the, some of this guy's books are still available. His book, Islamic Sufism. And you can see the kind of Naqshbandi trait. Um, author's preface. Fakir Sayyid Iqbal, London, September the 10th, 1933. I would say this is the first book ever to be written in English that addresses Sufism in its natural uh, homeland of Qur'an and Hadith, Islamic Sufism. In conclusion, I particularly invite the reader's attention to the title of this book, whereas I am that in authentic and legitimate senses, there is no form of Sufism other than Islamic. I was compelled to use the adjective Islamic before Sufism so that the uninitiated may not confuse it with some such non-Islamic movements, which due to utter ignorance of style Sufism, for a Sufi must of necessity be a Muslim, and the universal application of the Sufi thought is comprehensive in the same undoubted extent as is Islam. According to all correct doctrines, then, the Quran is the first and the last textbook of Sufism, and the Prophet Muhammad the greatest Sufi of all times. Whosoever, therefore, does not subscribe to this idea, despite the fact that he may be following an occult way, is not a Sufi. 
So we're clearly dealing with something that is Sharia compliant and very Islamic. This isn't like some of the movements that have been knocking around amongst the Edwardian intelligentsia of doing mystical Sufi dances, but having nothing to do with that, that dreadful thing, organized religion. Um, this guy, from his writing, is clearly coming from an authentic place. So he's in Oxford. Uh, and he's married a Scottish woman. <laughs> and just to indicate how traditional and Afghan these people are, he wires his father, uh, saying, I want to marry this girl. She's from Scotland. The father wires back saying, yes, but I have two questions. Will she become Muslim? And can she defend a fortress? <laughs> you can see he's really traditional Afghan warlord. And she says, yes, I can do both of those things. And so they get married and it turns into a very good marriage. So they're in Oxford, 1940, and their son, Idris Shah, who becomes really well known in the 60s and 70s, is also at Oxford City High along with Sheikh Ahmed. In fact, they're exact contemporaries. There's, I think, six weeks between them. They become close friends, and the teenage Ahmed, Roy, as he still was, uh, would visit their home in the Turl, which is a street in central Oxford. And it seems that uh, in the Oxford evenings, uh, during the blackout, the Sirdar Iqbal Ali Shah and his wife convinced Roy to become Ahmad, and that's where he took his shahada in 1942, in the presence of Idris, who was a witness. So he was aged 18. Um, Iqbal Ali Shah was kind of known in Oxford. He knew the Orientalists there. He knew uh, Freddie Beeston, who some people will still recall as the great Arabist, and knew Professor Zayna, uh, and disagreed with Zayna's idea that Sufism was some kind of uh, Hindu outgrowth. Sometimes he'd write for the Times uh, on Afghanistan, moved around a bit, uh, and after the 40s moved to Bath for a bit, and then to London, the kind of bell-sized park. Uh, area. Um, and then uh, he goes to India, this is Sayyid Iqbal, in order to try and sell his ancestral home. Uh, and he finds out that the home is uh, occupied by a, a usurper, and he has to go to the Indian courts, which is never easy, particularly after partition, and that the usurper has also pinched some waqf land and because he's afraid that people might have a go at him for doing this, he always goes around the streets of Delhi accompanied by two guards with drawn swords. <laughs> so he's dealing with a, a tough guy, but it seems that, that um, the, the case uh, proceeds successfully. Um, this is Iqbal Manzil. Um, and then we have basically from 1958 to 1969, quite intense correspondence between Sheikh Ahmed and Sirdar Iqbal Ali Shah, which is one of the few Naqshbandi-style maktoubat uh, correspondences that, that uh, we have in the English language. Ahmed Bullock sometimes wrote him in Arabic, more often in Farsi, but, but usually in English. Uh, 1960, after the Scottish woman dies, he moves to Tangiers, uh, first to the Hotel Cecil, uh, famous people like Tennessee Williams and Paul Bowles. This is, this is Tangiers, the cosmopolitan East meets West, Pillars of Hercules. 
uh, strange space which uh, recalls an age when the Muslim world was seen as being more tolerant than the Christian world. Uh, and then he finds a house where he seems to have established some kind of little local Sufi halqa, which he calls the Dar al-Irfan. Um, and he writes to Sayyid Ahmed, the place has many advantages, a good climate and amongst Muslims. Uh, he also gets to know somebody who, again, many Anglo-Muslims will remember, if only by repute, uh, Michael Scott, Abdullah Scott. One could, if one only had access to <coughs> the right archives, <coughs> do another Paradigms lecture just about Sidi Abdullah, Michael Scott. Uh, Michael Scott had been in Tangiers for much of his life. His father had been Sir Basil Scott, who was uh, Chief Justice of Bombay, a pillar of the Raj, who then retired to Tangiers and refurbished and extended a house which became one of the most famous houses in Morocco, really, Beit al-Aqwas, and I used to stay there myself. It was really palatial. It had like 50 bedrooms. The House of Rainbows. Nowadays they call it the Scott House. Uh, and Sidi Abdullah had become a Muslim, was involved with the, the tariqah of Sidi Hamza Bouchish. He used to take me to the different uh, gatherings and we would go to the mosque together and had been a war hero, rather like Sheikh Ahmed, they were contemporaries. He'd fought in the Western Desert in a guards regiment and uh, had uh, saved one of his men under heavy German fire, lost an eye. So Sheikh Ahmed lost an ear. Uh, Sidi Abdullah lost an eye. He used to walk around with a black patch. But he also had the ancestral home, Glenaros, in the Isle of Mull, which is still there, and a house in Cambridge in Chesterton. So he would often drive to Mull from Tangiers in this beat-up Volkswagen van. He never seemed to have any money, even though he used to go riding with Princess Margaret. He was from that world. Uh, and he would stop off in Cambridge, and he would attend Juma with us, and we remember how fast he used to walk. He was an archetypal guardsman, ramrod straight, and would stride, and we'd go off for a meal after Juma, and <laughs> it was difficult for me to catch up with him. He was an extraordinary guy, but full of stories, and very kind of esoterically minded. Uh, when I was in Tangier staying with him once, he introduced me to one of the world's best-known mermaid spotters, was this young Australian guy, because uh, just down the coast near Cap Spartel, beyond Marchand, where the, the, the Scott House is, there's a famous beach, which is one of the best places in the world, Sidi Abdullah assured me, for seeing mermaids. So he was involved in all of that kind of world. He was interested in the ley lines of South Cambridgeshire. But anyway, he uh, connects with uh, uh, the Sirdar Iqbal Ali Shah, um, although Scott is pretty convinced that there's no Naqshbandi presence in, uh, uh, in Tangiers. And Scott seems to be the one who arranges a janaza for um, the Sirdar's wife, but a, an absent Ra'ib uh, janaza in Tangiers. Um, yeah, so he wrote to Sheikh Ahmed, it appears to me though that all things being equal, this town of Tangier could very well become a centre for our studies and endeavours. We might think about it. <coughs> so he had this idea of creating some kind of Sufi centre in Tangiers, which was of course full of hashish smokers and alternative people and 
Juan Goitisola was there at the time, writing El Conde Julián, Spain's greatest 20th century author and novelist, was famously pro-Muslim, spent the rest of his life in, in Morocco. And he wrote this novel which praises the hate figure for traditional Spanish nationalists, who was Count Julian, who was the one who enabled the Muslims to invade Spain. Coitisola said, it's a shame that the Muslims didn't stay in Spain because what we've got now is Franco. Anyway, uh, so a lot of exiles and people like that. Uh, so he's in an interesting place. Um, I should quote some of his letters to Sheikh Ahmed at the time um, where he's giving him advice. It is therefore the first mission to cultivate those qualities in order to get sufficient illumination to be absorbed in God. And this is the first mission in comparison to guiding others or preaching to others because the first duty of a man is towards himself and he should get about getting illuminated before death overtakes him. I feel that I should make haste in that direction. If during this endeavour I could be of any direction to anyone, well, of course, I should be happy to be a sign, signpost and, uh, and say, here is the path. You see, Ahmed, time is to re-examine oneself and start by human action to refine oneself, refine by cultivating the well-known excellences of human behaviour, meaning toleration, piety of eye and thought, non-aggression, not considering oneself as the most excellent person, and so on. But this is a big subject. Come again when your domestic duties allow. Allah be with you all affectionately, Iqbal. So uh, one of the things that he's stressing to his murid, this is now a kind of formal relationship, uh, is the need to work on himself uh, and to put that before all of his dealings with the Oxford Mosque communities and his, uh, his business. Other things, and um, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on this. This is... Sayyid Iqbal Ali Shah's letter of 7th August 1963, uh, which is on the occasion of the Mawlid. He says, Al-Yawmu Mubarak fil Milad. So he's describing the Milad in Tangiers. The old women before whom are neatly piled tomatoes, green chilies, windfall, half-ripe little apples, and a little after the late afternoon prayer, winding their way homewards in groups of threes and fours, this time laden with the city shop's produce, salt, dried mint, a small can of crude oil for the lamps of their hillside cottage homes. Only this time they are riding their donkeys, their menfolks with their flowing and hooded robes of brown-black goat hair, jalabas, following these Amazons of the Rift Range a few miles beyond Tangier. Not, however, without reining their beasts of burden to hear the hurdy-gurdy of wayside moulded fare with fairy lights on all the booths of sweets and fruit, or pity the gamblers who could not throw their dice upon a glass jar or a flower pot or a cheap bracelet made of central African ivory, a veritable Hampstead Heath fair only people by the sons and daughters of Morocco. This is all in honour of four days moulded celebrations here, a picture once seen that could not be forgotten. So there's kind of local colour in some of these uh, letters as well. And sometimes the Siridar, interestingly, would write to Ahmed Bullock's wife. Um, he really stressed the importance of kindness to um, his wife and, and, and his mother. 
So he writes, I hope that you have taken note of my oft-repeated advice that the two ladies should continue to be your first and constant duty. And then, 1967, Sheikh Ahmed's mother dies, and this is the letter of condolence written by Iqbal. Dear Ahmed, Allah bless you. You are now an orphan, but I am still alive. Trust in Allah. Do not grieve, my son. You have done your duty towards that saintly mother of yours, and I shall bear witness on the day of judgment that you have acted with full consciousness as a good son. God will reward you in this and the other world. For the rest, remember that ridha, meaning submission to the will and purpose of Allah, is an important rule in the Sufi path. Also, bear in patience, for God is with the sabirin. Uh, 1968, uh, Ahmed and his wife travel together um, to Gibraltar and then to Tangiers where they stay at the Bristol Hotel. Uh, and at that time, and really throughout the correspondence, you find Sheikh Ahmed asking the Sheikh for advice on his leadership and particularly how to give a khutbah, how to lead the prayer correctly, what kind of subjects to be discussing with his community, which is actually very different to himself. So here's an example of this um, correspondence. <coughs> this is from the Sheikh. The sermon should be short, divided into two parts of, say, ten minutes each, exhorting the people to do pious acts and give them advice on up-to-date facts as affecting their lives in England. A practical way of life and advice with Muslim spirit is the essence of modern life, which will make their religion purposeful to them. <coughs> meaning as to how best to cope with their everyday problems as Muslims. <coughs> Otherwise, who does not know of heaven and hell and the day of judgment? The Mulvey type of sermons have had their day. You should try and make your sermon useful. That's an interesting piece of advice. He's talking to these people who have simple backgrounds and have simple jobs, and he says, don't give them the heaven and hell rant. They've heard that many times. Give them in their khutbah something that enables them to see how Islam is solving their practical day-to-day -day problems. So he sends him from Tangiers, a kind of Moroccan jalab and a cap in which to give his khutbahs. And he also writes, Concentrate on Indian and Pakistani Muslims in Oxford and nearby. Leave the students alone. They are always show-offs and being raw in mind are bad material. As they may grow in age and experience and getting several buffetings, they will either become good Muslims or go to the dogs. You cultivate your own path and God will help. Here's another uh, letter, which is where he's warning him uh, not to go to Woking. I've sent you a cable yesterday saying, leave alone which is that you are not to go to Woking to join the activities of that nefarious institution. If you do not know the place and it's working from its very inception, Dr. Leitner's time, you certainly know something about it for the last 20 years and that is enough. Keep away from it. It is a foul drain. Do not foul your clean hands with it. God has given you a clean field in Oxford. Concentrate on it and you will succeed. Shut your eyes against everything, everything else and fasten your eyes only on Oxford. The programme of committees which you have involved about work in hand in Oxford is good. Work on it and inshallah it will succeed. So he, he's advising him not to take on too much and to take on preaching or activities outside Oxford and to be aware of the 
necessary uh, boundaries. Um, so here's another letter in which he offers practical advice. 15th of August, 1968. Dear Ahmed, thank you for your letter. Your intention to establish a mosque and a centre in Oxford has my wholehearted approval. This is a pious and worthy action which I expect from you, but go at it with utmost speed and determination. Your co-workers may disappoint me in your course, but do not turn back or give it up. It is God's work and he will help you. Pin your faith in him and 100% faith, not 99%, a full and unqualified faith. And then you cannot fail. You should not fail. In any way that I and my friends and relatives can help, you can be assured of that. Therefore, go ahead with the practical form of it and at once. Start holding the Friday prayers and making a small library of Islamic literature, even in your own house, and I shall contribute Islamic books in Urdu. Give simple lectures to them on Sundays, nothing very high, not much about heaven and hell, but how practical Islamic practices can help the Muslim immigrants in their difficult task in England. Give attention forthwith to the religious education of their children and their wives. This is important. Shah Islam will benefit these people thousands of miles away from their homes. This is the kind of preaching that is wanted. If I come to England, it will be a great pleasure to me to give these men a course of Islamic religion in Urdu. Maybe that I could come to England for that purpose for two or three weeks if my economy is settled a bit, but that is in the lap of Allah. So he also recommends uh, that he pursues his Sufi interests and what seems to be this Naqshbandi Oasi path, uh, but in a way that's detached from the mosque. He doesn't want them to be linked. Now, by this time, uh, the Sirdar's son, uh, Idris, has established or come by a centre at a place called Coombe Springs, uh, and he wants the Oxford Centre to be kind of complementary to the Coombe Springs Centre, but to be quiet. So he writes, only do not beat a big drum about it. It is quietening movement against no religion and against no one. It gives hope to those who are unhappy. In fact, it helps a person in his daily life and even worldly affairs, for in it one has to be in the world and not of it, a classical term. Go ahead, therefore, in this God's work and God will help you. Do not forget your dhikr, five minutes every four hours at the least. So this is another letter from him shortly after his uh, bereavement. After months lonely distress, I discovered that I was to live on according to my belief. For the holy book says, we have created the jinns and human beings for no other purpose than to do ibadah. Now, from my point of view, ibadah is twofold. One duty towards God and the like duty towards fellow creatures. Our duty as enjoined by the holy book is usual prayers, fasting, etc., etc., and pious deeds in general. And I feel that our equally great duty is to make the fellow human beings happy in all respects, in the pious way, of course. My duty, therefore, is to try and impart such happiness to those dear and near to my late wife as I can. Financially, alas, I'm unable to impart that happiness, for I live like a darwish. But even then, there might be other ways in which my usefulness may impart happiness and guidance. To you, as to the boys and Amina, therefore, I shall continue to do this to the end of my day, inshallah. I feel that you should interest yourself more and more towards the Indian Muslims in Oxford and their spiritual uplift. 
I do not think that the guidance that you can give to them in the spiritual avenues can be given by that mullah that they have got as the imam of their prayer room. Start a class of spiritual interpretation in Oxford to which invite also the Englishmen and women and the Indians can come also. In short, start a school of wisdom or a Sufi society at once. You have my blessings and permission to do so. Do this as an additional work, but do not neglect your activities wherewith you earn your bread. Be in the world, but be not of it. God will help this, but keep it in tune with English conditions. Do not don the khirqa of a darwish. It would be odd in Oxford, and oddity is not necessary. Message is the real thing. Tackle ordinary facts of everyday life equal to the mentality of your audience, and do not go into discussions with them, for your class should not degenerate into an intellectual exercise, but a positive contribution to a better everyday life. Go forth in the name of God, and you will succeed. Let me hear about this by return post, and I've written to Idris Jan to convey the same message to you in case you do not receive this letter. So his, uh, the letters at this stage become more and more frequent. And we find him insisting that he not neglect his dunya. You say that your book trade business is in a mess. It is, I am sure, due to your not giving as much attention to it as you should. You see, my dear son, your Sufi training insists that you should be in the world, though not of it. This is the Naqshbandi idea. The truth in it is never to be forgotten. Indeed, you should write it in a large cardboard with very bold letters written on it and hang the slogan in your bedroom so that the very first thing that you might see on waking up is that slogan. And there's some other um, reminders of the necessity of earning one's halal uh, rizq rather than focusing all the time on one's religious activities. I'm happy to have had your news. What I have in view is a simple beginning about interesting the non-Muslim in Islam and re-emphasizing Islam to the Muslims. Call it the Islamic Society of Oxford. Its advice should be to both Muslims and non-Muslims. That is, all those who wish to hear about Islam as a simple and a practical truth. Sufi thought practice and preaching is not for the kind of people that one gets at Oxford. What I mean is that the world has strayed so far away from spirituality that the first step is to bring them to an orbit of simple spiritual atmosphere. Start, therefore, on these lines. Higher studies come very much later. For your zikr, ya salam, meaning, O thou, the complete one, is a good zikr a thousand times a day. And then... an indication of his necessary wazifa, make yourself in tune at Isha time, for at that hour I shall recall you always. Being in tune means that you should do your dhikr 303 times the name of God and consider that you are sitting with me. Then a contact is established. It takes a little time, but it can be done. This is the Naqshbandi principle of Rabata, the idea that one imagines oneself actually in the presence of the, the teacher um, to aid concentration and connection. 23rd of December 1958. Uh, this is after Sheikh Ahmed had written a rather complicated letter asking for uh, interpretation of some difficult Quranic verses. It's very pleasing to me that you desire to have an explanation of certain ayats, but my advice is to leave off this sort of quest meantime. 
The reason is that any explanation that may be given will be uh, short within the confines of an air letter and may thereby leave you thirsty, as it were. All this can be much better explained by word of mouth when, inshallah, we meet. For the time being, however, my advice is most rigid regularity to be observed in the five daily prayers and the wazifa. And then he gives the, uh, the wazifa. And this, again, is characteristic of the relationship that the student wants to do too much and to in- engage with too many uh, projects and to understand things that are <coughs> subtle and not really necessary. Uh, and it's more important to begin with and to maintain <coughs> the basics. In conclusion, this is 29th of January 1969, the end of 1969, the Sirdar dies in a traffic accident. So this is in his last year. You are marked out to be a leader of the Muslims in Oxford. Lead them on the path of Islam. They should know their God first, get in tune with him before they may have time to try and know about other things or the cause of the decline of the Muslim people. Know thyself first and then you will know thy God. Walk gently, my son, as I've already said, The atmosphere is surcharged with adverse emotions. Men are in a fog of their own making. Worship the way Omar and Ali worshipped. They achieved what Islam can and will give to every Muslim, to you and to me also. Stand firm on Qur'an and Sunnah. The rest does not matter. And Allah, your refuge and protector. Yeah, this is where he's writing again about Sheikh Ahmad and the need to uh, maintain uh, positive, compassionate ties with parents. You and she are not two people, therefore keep with her. Cherish her and thank God that you have her. I'm getting to my end, maybe a month, a year. After that, all that remains is but a memory. Think little, my son, of money, of possessions, and lack of possessions. My four forefathers were Nawabs. I am a fifth Nawab. We had horses, elephants, landed property, titles. Where are they? Where am I? And what do they possess now in their graves? And what would I? Distress yourself uh, no more and think of reality. You are of an age when you can think clearly, deeply. Strive for that which a man takes with himself, not that which he must perforce leave behind. Cultivate love deeper and deeper of those who love you for that is all that anyone has left behind him ever. Allah gives 45 million Englishmen food and shelter. He will not forget you. It is worry that kills a man and worry for things that perish. Think of that, be of good cheer, do good for goodness sake and give devotion and loyalty to those who deserve it. That is why I mourn my wife, a supremely insan Kamil, loyal, truthful, pious. I live frugally here. I live only because she has placed a mission upon my shoulders to see that you all have an anchor. That affected, the job is finished, and I go. Live with affection and devotion towards your mother and others, and God should never be forgotten. Write when you can, for letters from you are like your kindly visit and enliven my sad hours, especially in the darkness of evenings when I am alone and quietness descends upon uh, the earth and her photograph talks to me. Give my salutations to your dear mother and your wife. Allah is with you all. Another letter, 21st, 7th of 1969. 
writing to Sheikh Ahmed, use your holiday time in the social welfare of the immigrant Muslims, especially their children, who if neglected will grow up as more than heathens, neither proper Muslims nor yet Christians. That social problem of these Indian and Pakistani Muslims is not fully appreciated till these children will grow up like several I had seen at Woking, as specimens of the worst type of EastEnders, till one was ashamed to be in their company. So he was afraid of the outcome of bad education of the second generation when the first generation were not themselves particularly educated. And indeed, in Oxford, they've had dozens of grooming convictions and so forth. It's not not a happy place. And so here, the Siradar is kind of foretelling uh, that, that affliction. Yeah, we should close shortly. So many of these are really worth um, preserving for posterity. I must remind you that you should keep Sufism strictly to yourself. As I pointed out to you in one of my previous letters, Sufism is a postgraduate course, so that those who are to attend your centre are a long way behind this course. For the next four to five years, they have to do simple orthodox, be simple orthodox followers of simple Islamic prayers, any form of dhikr, however simple, will confuse them and will put you in a position in which you would be misunderstood. Leave it alone, those Thursday dhikr meetings. Anything of that kind will harm the movement from the very beginning. You can give lectures on purely Islamic subjects, but nothing of the mystic law to be introduced in the meantime. I hope that you realise how grateful you should be that God has given you this opportunity to make the Muslims better Muslims. There's more there about the Raja of... Mahmoudabad. So now the final section is uh, some letters exchanged between Sheikh Ahmed and Idris Shah. Idris Shah, by far the best known of any of the individuals who emerged from this little crucible in Oxford. And Idris Shah usually is regarded by Muslims and comparative religionist academics as a sort of dilettante or a uh, popularizer who tried to ride the wave of the 60s counterculture by providing mystical wisdom from the East that was stripped of its Islamic matrix. Uh, and indeed, many of his books can appear to be that, that Quran and Sunnah have been taken out and the Sufi stories are recast to make it look like some sort of universal wisdom. But what we're going to see in this correspondence is that uh, that may be uh, a premature judgment. Here's, um, we can only look at a few of these, but there's quite a few. Here's one from Idris Shah in Farsi. Agaya muhtaram Ahmed Jan. Assalamu alaikum. Azgar aftani maktouba ahali. So it's uh, my prayers for your family, etc. Digar khabar ve daiti raja be tijarat khahed ahmed. Az piri ma ke mi go yad ke dar khab did ke yek ruz. Pul bidasti Ahmedjan Mirasad, ve az an pul yek qismi tijarati khairi bi khair mubarak khahed shud. This seems to be a reference to uh, Idris saying that his father had seen in a dream that Ahmed would begin his uh, book business and that this would be lucrative and would be sufficient for him. So. In a sense, it's the Sheikh's dream, but mediated, interestingly, through this Farsi letter by Idris. Um, more could be said, but um, I'm aware that time is pressing. 
Ähm, here is an interesting note, undated by Sheikh Ahmad in his difficult handwriting, where he talks about what Idris, who is after all like his best friend, his school chum, uh, is up to with his propagation of Sufi stories. In a time when the political or any other sort of unity of Islam has patiently ceased and the balance of human security is uniquely precarious, provision does continue for survival. This does not mean that in this age Muslim fundamentalist hegemony is to be looked for or that some sort of socialist capitalist amalgam could evolve for world government. These are systems and as such subject to corruption and decay. A new learning is essential, not just for revival in the dark age of technology, but for human survival. The new learning is in fact the current projection of the old learning, but this learning has to be imbibed and practiced by a greater proportion of humanity as a necessity. Again, there's more that he writes here, but in the context of his writing about the spiritual role of Idris Shah, and the necessity in our age for promoting on as wide a basis as possible of at least the fragrance of the recollection of the sheikhs. Uh, people are closed to strict religious preaching nowadays. People consider themselves above organised religion, uh, which they think is a restraint on their precious autonomy and freedom. Uh, the world is becoming secularised. If one is to resacralize it, it seems one needs to get into their souls at some level a recollection of and the names of the great shuyukh. And this may be what Sheikh Ahmed thought was Idris Shah's role in producing these bestsellers and influencing people like Doris Lessing, Richard Williams and others, that just by spreading the names of these people, as Atara suggested, that some kind of spiritual reconfiguration in these otherwise very Western and hard and egotistic souls can be uh, uh, promoted. And it's interesting that in these letters from Idris, he comes across as an observant and a practicing Muslim, and he begins always with 786, as you'd expect, uh, but quite often with the number 40. 786, and beneath that, 40. And then, Assalamu alaikum ya akhi, is a letter from Idris. Uh, the 40 is a number uh, related to the unseen apotropean saints, the Abdal, of whom there are 40, uh, mentioned in a hadith, who are, in some mysterious and ungraspable sense, the custodians of the age. Uh, exactly why Idris is using the 40 and the relevance of the Arba'in here. But we've already noted um, that the Arba'in is a principle uh, connected to the Uwaisiyah and the idea that one can, without formal initiation, benefit in some spiritually effulgent way from the, the spirit or even from the name of a great saint that has passed. So here is uh, Idris Shah writing to Sheikh Ahmad. Assalamu alaikum ya akhi. And then he says, under these circumstances, it's customary to recite in the Naqshbandi Tariqah the Asma'i Husna, reading them if one does not know them. At, which is, at each ism, one should dwell in the mind upon the quality represented by the invocant. Ya Ghalib is for those who are Maghlub. Ya Fattah 
is for those who are closed in and so on. The ism will respond in accordance with its own that, its essence, in harmony with the needs of the invocant and not his wishes as it were. The element of insha'Allah, I would make a practice of doing a weird of the asma, uh, al-husna every day, two or three times. I would say, oh Allah, give the barakah of this oration to the mu'mineen, to the awliya and to those who are in need. This wazifa should be carried out for 40 days after calming oneself a little and remembering that the barakat of Hazrati Khidr is always with the good intention of the Sufis. That's another Waisi principle, Khidr as the present guide. The chuf and dam of the salik is really the weird of the tariqah and by its force the mu'jizat or the karamat which have taken place are uncountable. karim rahim amin idris. So, this is a voice that's coming absolutely from the heart of an Islamic Naqshbandi tradition. But this is not the face that Idris turns to the world when he was dealing with big ego, uh, BBC interviewers and uh, novelists and the like, who needed just a little fraction of the sugar on the pill, but really would not be able to sustain something like the full tradition of an authentic world religion. Another letter, Idris Shah to Ahmad Bullock. Tawakkul ba khuda. I'm happy to say that my prayers have been accepted and that the at first insuperable problems were mercifully reduced. You've spoken to the inability to concentrate in prayer. I have had a demonstration that this is no obstacle to the acceptance of supplication. Alone and yet not lonely, I've been able, alhamdulillah, to do much. I'm sorely troubled by conscience for I've put all my troubles on the shoulders of others, Niazmend Idris. 3rd of August 1960, Ahmed Bullock writes to Idris Shah asking for him to interpret a dream. Sometimes they correspond in Persian, sometimes Ahmed would write to him in Arabic, um, which I suspect Idris really didn't know. Um, 28th of May 1963, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Assalamu alaikum. As an anonymous donation for a, from a Muslim for a Muslim bookseller, here is a sum, no loan, no interest, no repayment, only condition it should be mentioned to nobody at all. Salutations to you all from us all, Idris. So he's kind of supporting his struggling book business uh, as a Muslim. Sometimes also we find Idris asking Ahmed for information about books and uh, we can interpret the... Uh, evident wide reading of uh, Idris Shah in his Sufi uh, storytelling books as benefiting massively from the fact that he did have access to texts that were supplied to him from his uh, <coughs> school friend. Here's another interesting letter. Idris Shah to Ahmad Bullock, 23rd of February 1959. Went to the record people this morning. Did not clinch deal because it's with an HP company who charged riba and the sellers won't do it any other way. Total price, if done this way, works out at the riba. So what do you advise? I suggest that we avoid this obvious riba. If we can't make a collection to buy for cash, leave it alone. Sounds like, at least at this stage, he was scrupulous, mutawarri, and uh, sharia compliant. There were nonetheless disagreements um, that sometimes the sirdar would attempt to mediate between the two friends. Um, uh, we don't 
have uh, many of Ahmed's letters, but it seems that there was an argument between them about one of Idris's earliest books, which he called Oriental Magic, which is an apparently kind of occult dabbling in various uh, shamanistic and juju practices of different cultures. Um, and <coughs> as a result of this argument, Sheikh Ahmed thought that he had no business writing a book about magic. What's the benefit in it? 18th of February, my dear brother and old friend, Assalamu alaikum, I hope that you are well, your family are all well. This is Idris to Ahmed. There should be no difference between us, and if there is a misunderstanding or a feeling of disharmony, such a thing should subside and should have no real being. Do not let the sun set on your anger. Hadith. If there is any disunity between us, <coughs> we have violated our greatest principle, that of unity. This unity is only the absence from the mind temporarily of a sense of unity. Such a sense of unity, being as it is fundamental to man and Islam, is, and Islam is the natural state, and its return is therefore not difficult. It is other people who make human beings at odds with one another, through envy or malice. It is only by envy or malice or misunderstanding that such a feeling in ourselves can be fed. We should deny it such nutrition. As far as I am aware, there is nobody who knows that there has been any sense of estrangement between us. Let us therefore reclaim at once our sense of brotherhood and cherish it as we cherish, cherish each other. Which is the Qur'an. They both would have known the meaning. Hold fast to Allah's rope and do not be separated. Reconciliation is the sunnah. As far as I'm concerned, there is no difference among us or between us. <coughs> I remember Shifi saying to his father, no nifaq, only ittifaq. We've been friends for too long now for nifaq. Have we reclaimed our ittifaq? I feel we have. We have. Wassalam, your brother Idris. You can see the closeness between them and the frankness. And is really trying to overcome uh, this anger uh, that Sheikh Ahmed had regarding this book about uh, magic, which uh, can be seen from this perhaps slightly speculative perspective that this is a sort of oasis way of indicating to people that there is something beyond just the formal structure of things and that some people do need to begin with ghosts and spirits and things that are easily verifiable and seem to be far away from that detested thing. Organised religion. I remember uh, somebody I met a few times, the Chevrolet Sitwell, who was another of these sort of bright young things from that, 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 that generation, a uh, great art historian, wrote a book on poltergeists. He was himself embarked in a religious quest and just found the most useful way of breaking the scientistic idea that matter is all that exists, to be looking at things like ghosts and spirits um, as a kind of interrogation of scientific reductionism. Anyway, so they obviously disagreed on whether this was a valid method or not. Uh, and here is a letter uh, from Sirdar Iqbal Ali Shah, also trying to bring about uh, this reconciliation. Your letter has reached me. Its contents distressed me. I know you and I know my children. All of you have grown in my lap, as it were. There is none of my children who has not as deep an affection for you as you have for them. Idris Jan is no exception, for in many an occasion he impelled me to do this or that for you. 
If there's any difference of opinion between you and him, it's natural between two egos. But there can never be a profound cleavage. If you strike a stream of water with a walking stick, the flowing water cannot be cut into two pieces. You are one and indivisible. Uh, and then he goes on, do not mix to sawaf with a book trade. So again, the father is perfectly aware of how close uh, Sheikh Ahmed was to uh, Idris, even though this was never part of the formal ministry, as it were, of Idris, which is this seeding of the Western intelligentsia with the thought that, well, perhaps there is a God, and mentioning the names of these, these Sufi saints. So we're drawing to a close now, and unfortunately some of the, the Idris Shah correspondence um, can't, be, can't be shared. Um, Here is an there's some interesting indications in the correspondence of the kind of less public aspect of what Idris was doing. On the surface, and we have, I think, all of his books um, in the library here at CMC, and people are sometimes asking us what they're here for because it seems to be a kind of borderized, oversimplified form of Sufism that really doesn't compete well with classic texts. Nowadays, people want to read Henry Bayman or Edsgul Shuitema or the, the newer generation of Sufi writers in the West, but uh, the purpose which I'm speculating about was to, as it were, throw these pearls as widely as possible in the hope that a few people might get the fragrance of these names and take a more serious interest. So it's a kind of seeding exercise, but there are in interesting instances of what's going on behind the scenes of Coombe Springs and all of these other communities and various shenanigans. So here is a letter from Idris to Ahmed. Would you please help in an Islamic matter? Uh, write out the solat in full in typewriting. This is for an English person to learn. Woking has the book, so I think has the cultural center. Send it to squadron leader so-and-so. Mark all the passages which have to be learned by heart. Enclose a letter saying that the text must be committed to memory. Uh, the Actual pronunciation can be improved later. Tie it in if you can with the prayer postures. The memorizing, however, is most important at this stage. Also, summary of the Shahada and five principles. Say, at the recommendation of Idris Shah, I suggest Fatiha, Kalthar, and Al-Ikhlas for the Quranic parts will be more in touch soon, inshallah, Idris. So you can see that his fishing in this large muddy pond of big egos who want to learn Eastern Oriental wisdom and making money from uh, these bestsellers uh, as well. Uh, but at the same time, where people are really serious, there are people who he directs towards the reality of tariqah, but kind of discreetly and behind the scenes. Um, and I remember um, one of his disciples, Richard Williams, who was a great uh, uh, draftsman and one of the great animators, really, of the 20th century. He did the animation for the Who Killed Roger Rabbit film and the, the animated titles for the Pink Panther films. He was really one of the greats and had a big studio in, in Soho. And uh, I remember praying with him. He came up to Cambridge and we prayed together. I said, Richard Jamal ad-Din, how did you come into Islam? And he said, it's through Idris Shah and his teachings that Jamal ad-Din had actually done the illustrations to Idris Shah's Nasruddin books, very brilliant. Um, illustrations. And it was through that that he started to detect more and more clearly the, the fragrance of true Tasawwuf, being a basically pure-hearted and decent guy. So 
that was an example of somebody who was actually hooked, as it were, by this, this, this complex and, to many, con uh, controversial Dawa strategy. And here's another. Um, we're almost done. <coughs> it's Ramadan, and I can see the cameraman starting to nod. Uh, but we're almost there. Uh, this is a letter from Idris to Ahmed Bullock, uh, 786. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Ramadan Mubarak, uh, etc. Thank you for your letter. And then one paragraph stands out. Khayli khushshavim al shanidani aizari vidusti kakai shuma. Dawa bekhahish az khudai ta'ala mikonim ki nurul islam bedeli o dakhil shavad. So Idris is saying, uh, I'm really happy to hear um, about um, the, your honourable and respected uh, uncle, and it is my prayer and wish from God that the light of Islam will enter his heart. So this is, on this perspective, where Idris Shah really is in his private correspondence, that is praying for people's relatives to um, experience the light of Islam in their hearts. Um, and there's other cases that one could cite. And uh, there's more material that we haven't sifted through, and no doubt much has been lost. But I think it's not an unrealistic uh, expectation of this Oasi Nakshi lineage uh, that it was uh, tasked with casting, as it were, the bait very broadly over the turbulent pond of uh, the British and American intelligentsia in the middle of the 20th century. And some people were attracted to Sufism in the first instance by reading these books that might, to most of us, seem a little bit kind of superficial and, and uh, knowing. Uh, and no doubt, the spreading of the names of the great awliya, the names of the Naqshbandi, Khajigana, the names of the four Chahariyar, the four Khalafat, amongst people who otherwise would never have touched a book about any religion, has had an effect in this Oasi way. And demonstrably, people have come into Islam this way. A friend of mine in Spain, uh, alhamdulillah, is a good observant Muslim and has been for decades now, came into Islam after first learning about Sufism from the books of Idris Shah. And there are many other examples. So uh, he does write, this is Sheikh Ahmad, and this is the final word, about his reflection on himself and what he thought was the most significant thing in his life. While I cannot claim celebrity like Abdullah Quilliam, the first and the only Sheikh al-Islam of the British Isles, nor of Marmaduke Pictor, nor of Martin Lings, nor yet of Guy Eaton, I can boast some 13 and a half years of hands-on experience of running one of the most fissiparous of Muslim communities here in Oxford. That really is where he saw his, his legacy, uh, trying to keep a Muslim community with different ethnicities, different politics, different sects on an even keel, and he really struggled for that. Uh, so he was, alhamdulillah, a, a supporter of CMC and prayed for us at our opening. And inshallah, we've seen some of the blessings of his du'a because I, I believe that he was a simple-hearted person who loved God and his messenger. And I don't believe that the prayer of such a heroic soul, 
who was basically a solitary and had in many ways a difficult life, uh, would, uh, would not be answered by heaven. So alhamdulillah, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cover him with his mercy and inshallah if we're at Brookwood and we visit Pictall and uh, Idris Shah is there and Gay Eaton is there and others, uh, inshallah we'll read a fatiha for uh, Sheikh Ahmed uh, when next we're there inshallah. Barakallahu fikum wal afu minkum assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.